Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Los Angeles County Sheriff Lee Baca said this week he may close at least part of the L.A. County Men's Central Jail, the country's largest jail, in the face of allegations of abuse. Ben Tracy has the details, and we caution you, some of the images may be difficult to watch. I'm gasping for air, telling him to stop, I can't breathe. Gabriel Carrillo was not an inmate. He was visiting his brother at the Los Angeles Men's Central Jail. Even so, he says deputies took him into an interrogation room because he had a cell phone, a violation of visitor rules. He alleges deputies handcuffed him and beat him. I was in tremendous pain. Uh, I blacked out to a point where I was awoken to more punches to my head, where my head bouncing off the floor. He looked so bad, even his girlfriend did not recognize him. They passed right in front of me, didn't even stop. Carrillo's attorney, Ron Kay, has filed a federal civil rights lawsuit. There is no jail in the United States that has this pattern of misconduct, of abuse, and of essentially sadism that the L.A. County Jail has. Many of those accusing the deputies of assaulting them are not convicted felons. They're here waiting for a court date, unable to post bail. The FBI is investigating, and the ACLU has filed a lawsuit accusing the sheriff of ignoring inmate abuse. The 72 sworn statements in the ACLU's lawsuit paint a grim picture. Deputies slamming inmates' heads against the wall, dislocating an inmate's shoulder, and pressing a key into an inmate's arms, leaving puncture wounds. Photos gathered by the ACLU show gashes on inmates' foreheads, broken teeth, and bruising. It's huge. It's a huge problem. We get lots and lots of letters and phone calls from inmates themselves and also from family members. Esther Lim is jail monitor for the ACLU and says she witnessed one of the beatings. While conducting a jail interview, she says she looked out the window and saw two deputies punching a non-responsive inmate. And later they take out their taser and they tase this guy who, who's again, not fighting, not moving. And he looks to me like he's not, he's, he's unconscious. At a press conference this week, LA County Sheriff Lee Baca disputed allegations that he's not properly handling the alleged abuse. We are literally in, in a reformation of how we do business when it comes to the use of force. He said he's even considering closing at least part of the jail, but not because he's being pressured. We're not talking here about uh, all of a sudden we're been, we've been put in a corner. We've always believed in forward thinking in the sheriff's department. As long as I'm the sheriff of this county, we're going to always be creative and forward thinking. Baca has been sheriff for 13 years. Allegations of abuse have been ongoing since the 1970s. The sheriff gave no timeline as to when any shutdown of his lockup may happen. Ben Tracy, CBS News, Los Angeles. And welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight will be no exception. We attempted last week to do this program, but weather didn't cooperate with us. Tonight we are back to address a very important issue, and that is abuse behind the wall. 
We take a look inside America's prisons, federal and state, as well as local jails where there's unexplainable conduct that not only is costing the lives of Americans, but also crossing the line of cruel and unusual punishment. Folks, we're coming right back with that very serious discussion tonight as we take a look at the abuse behind the wall. Folks, hang on to your seats. We're coming right back. AJC Radio kicks off right now. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt. And tonight, again, we deal with abuse behind the wall. And this discussion will get very serious as we have had issues across this nation with not only police brutality, but also brutality at a whole nother level uh, in our prisons across the United States. And we're going to be addressing that very uh, difficult issue of not only holding now correctional officers accountable for violating the Constitution for have been in, and also being involved in murder, uh, all types of things that just don't stand to reason. And we're going to get into that discussion. Lisa, the disclaimer for our listeners, please. Yes, we'd like to remind everyone that we are not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide legal advice. You'll want to contact your personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC Radio. And as always, we want to thank you for tuning in and spending a little of your evening with us. And thank you for that. And uh, again, we'll get into that conversation here shortly. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, Dennis, after discussing this type of issue, uh, we are always faced with a dilemma in this country with those in authority abusing that authority. And uh, this comes down not only to correctional officers, but it falls at the feet of the warden uh, who actually runs the prisons on the federal level. It, it, It falls there, but it falls also at the feet of the Bureau of Prisons in Washington who oversees the conduct. Of, of officers in the federal prison system. When you think about this type of abuse with these folks who are, who are really in position to inf- make sure safety uh, and security is at these facilities, we have too many unexplained deaths in these situations, whether it be county jail, uh, uh, local state prisons, as well as the federal prison system. Uh, we have an epidemic that seems to be continually growing in this country, and a- ironically, with African-American inmates. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's true, and it's uh, it's an abuse of power. I mean, for some reason, I you know, you put a person in a position where they're in charge of someone, uh, they usually do the wrong thing, and and that's sad to say, especially in a prison environment where they feel that the the, the inmates are are worthless. I mean, uh, most of them believe that the inmates should be there. Uh, they deserve what they're getting, and uh, they they try to do more uh, to make their their lives that much miserable. And I think that's a shame. And I think we need to fix our justice system, our prison system, to make sure that, you know, we're not treating, you know, the inmates worse than we're, we're treating animals. No, no, absolutely. And these are things that can't happen. And Cliff, your thoughts on, on this type of situation uh, in America that, again, you have folks dying in prison. You have a system of the school to prison pipeline uh, that promotes and enhances these kids into these situations. And then ultimately, they pay the ultimate price in many of these cases. Your thoughts? Well, what you have to look at is that, you know, the the correctional officers, they are not supposed to be the judgment or the sentence for the inmates that are going there. The inmates, I mean, we have ones who are there 
who are not supposed to be, they they have been wrongfully convicted. Then even the ones who have been convicted, their punishment is the fact that they're locked up in prison. They don't need you now becoming a tyrant and playing God over their lives. That is not their punishment. Their punishment is, to be, is being taken from society, being taken from their family, and being locked up and having their freedoms taken away. But so many times you have the correctional officers, the warden, and uh, other members of the senior staff that feel like they are going to ensure that people in prison are punished for the crime that they've supposedly committed. That is not the way the prison system is set up, and that is where you end up with the abuse of power. Because, like Dennis said, you end up with the uh, with the staff looking at people like, well, you're not human, you're a criminal, uh, and you deserve to be here anyway. Well, if they do deserve there, that's punishment enough that you have, you have your uh, freedom taken away and you're being kept in a cage for a certain amount of years. Yeah, it's almost like double jeopardy if you yeah. think about it. You know, you, you go into prison, you've been sentenced to a certain amount of time or whatever jail, and sometimes uh, the individuals that are in jail are still waiting. They're, they're actually having been accused with a crime. And then for, uh, you know, our, our, our so, so-called officials uh, to treat them like dirt and, and then, you know, then try to punish them again, I mean, that's wrong, and it shouldn't be like that. So we definitely need to definitely fix our uh, prison system. No, absolutely. And, Lisa, your thoughts on that as we uh, – now you're having kids killed actually at the level, uh, uh, you know, in juvenile uh, halls that are being punished. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the juvenile kids uh, that have been locked up who were involved in human trafficking and then charged with crimes, uh, those things. Lisa, when you hear that – uh, we have a, I believe, an epidemic, possibly even bigger, that's tucked away and hidden, that's not being exposed in regards to the correctional facilities across this country, where correctional officers are getting away with murder, and it's definitely not on the front pages in, in most cases. No, and I think it's ridiculous. We, our system is broken. It's badly, badly broken. When you have children, when you have things like that happening to kids that are when this stuff is it's outside of their control, there's nothing they can do about these things. And I'm trying, I try to understand how it is you can charge a child with a crime for something that they're not even old enough to commit. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, they're children. There are certain things that children can do, but some things, it just, it just doesn't make sense. No, without question, and we're dealing with not only that, we're dealing with Sandra Bland being taken in custody in Texas after, after accepting a job at her automata. I believe I said that correct. Uh, and our university that she had attended. Uh, she also, uh, for a traffic ticket, uh, and if you see the video on this uh, sheriff that pulls her out the car, uh, and she says, you can't touch me because I'm not under arrest. This is a traffic stop. He says, you're under arrest, and commits on putting his hands on her. She's not resisting where he had to throw her down on the ground. Uh, the sheriff puts her on the ground, uh, she's bruised up a little bit as a result of the encounter. She's dead within a few days of being taken into police custody with all the claim of suicide. Uh, doesn't stand the reason that somebody who's probably going to walk out of that jail on their own recognizance probably, or within a day or two of being arraigned, would take their life. I agree with you 100%. There's no way that could have happened. But I tell you, until we start holding uh, you know, the prison accountable for their actions is like you said the warden top dog i mean he's he's at the very highest i mean uh, you need to know how to control your prison your jail and if you don't do that then there's consequences but right now there are no consequences 
They, they continue to abuse the inmates. They continue to abuse family members that visit, and that's out of control. I mean, uh, you got visitors being abused by uh, the, the prison. So I'll tell you, until we say, okay, enough is enough, you're going to pay for it, whether it be with your job, whether we, we, we ask you to resign, whatever we need to do, or actually put you in prison. No, absolutely, and that is uh, uh, that's definitely a true fact. And these are things that um, uh, that has to happen. These are things that that must take place. We have to take a look at the problems in this country, uh, and these are things that actually must uh, be dealt with. We're going to deal with some of those issues tonight. Uh, some some thoughts from uh, members of Congress who have, have chimed in. We also going to be joined by Gary York. Uh, he was a prison training and rotation uh, of officers. Uh, my understanding did uh, a variety of uh, investigations into the into the actions uh, in our in those prisons across the country. So uh, we'll be addressing that as well. Uh, and I'll tell you what, it's something that that again needs to be looked at, uh, needs to be uh, definitely looked into as we continue uh, as a country to take very little confidence uh, in our criminal justice system. And that's one of those things that just uh, is just really uh unnerving as we see people die we have the man in florida uh cooked to death in a shower boiled uh while officers sit on the outside and laugh uh and and make fun uh of all of these things so uh when you look at that cliff i mean this this guy said he was mentally challenged uh had some issues was there for very little uh amounts of cocaine uh, which they, his his family definitely uh, does not believe that that wasn't even an issue. Uh, so we look at we look at those things uh, very seriously. And when you see that in the mocking, there must be a culture within the correctional system uh, that says it's okay because it continues to happen. And we have yet to hear, after all of those signatures that have been attained in that case, of any of these men being brought to justice on this murder. Exactly. I mean, you have where i mean you have one issue with the prison system is that you shouldn't have uh people who are mentally challenged or have mental illness they should not be housed in general population they shouldn't i mean they shouldn't be in prison they should be in a hospital where they can get help but you end up with uh these mentally ill people in ho- in prisons then the corrections officers treat them like there's nothing wrong with them and then when when they act out in a way that the correction officer has no training to deal with then you end up with these type of situations where you have a man boiled to death in a uh, in a shower, and you know, like Gary York, with him being a uh, senior prison inspector, he has uh, told us before that you know when he would do inspections, you no, know, because most of the time they do inspections on, uh, you know, it's not a pop-up inspection. They they get told, you know, uh, we as uh, the BOP headquarters. We're going to have somebody come down there, and we're going to look around at your prison. Well, Gary York said, no, me as an inspector, I'm going to show up at 2 o'clock in the morning. You're not going to know I'm there. I'm just knocking on the door saying, hey, I got my uh, my prison inspector badge, and I'm coming in. And I dare you not to let me because uh, guarantee your, your higher-up boss will be talking to you early uh, the next morning. So, you know, from, from his experience where he would, uh, you know, come in, and he would see all the things. He would see the corruption. He would see, you know, the corrections officers and the wardens and, and uh, everybody involved that, you know, these are the things that are not supposed to be happening. And that's why he ended up writing a book called, you know, Corruption Behind Bars, because he saw it firsthand. 
He's like, I'm a prison inspector. This is my job. This is what I do. I'm not letting you know I'm on the way. I'm showing up in the in the wee hours of the midnight when I know there's got to be some dirt going on, <laughs> and I'm catching you in the act. And that is what we need because the biggest issue, like you said, Dennis, is there is no accountability. Nobody is being held accountable for what's going on behind the bars. It, it, it's just like, okay, here you have – the throwaways of society as as the uh, staff look at at the inmates and they're allowed to do whatever they want to and it, it's totally uh uncalled for uh totally unjust it's like let the punishment fit the crime and if you're locked up taken away from your family again taken away from society uh you can't have a job you can't go home and sleep in your bed and now you have another man telling you what you'll do every hour of the day that is your punishment not okay since you're in here now we're going to treat you like a, uh, you know, I mean, animals get treated better. Uh, Michael Vick went to prison for the way he treated dogs. And exactly. you have these corrections officers who are killing human beings and not being held accountable. Yeah, and that, and that, just, that, that won't work. I mean, and that's the problem. Uh, you, again, it's, I, I think it's like this power complex, yeah. you know. Uh, now I have the power. I can do whatever I want with you. I can treat you any way I want. You would think, and I'm, I'm almost sure there are laws that do protect the prisoner. I'm sure, you know, no one's uh, really saying, yeah, we need to have laws to protect right. the prisoners, but we do. I mean, because we have, uh, we have correctional officers that uh, are either ill-trained or uh, they really don't know what they're doing. I mean, if you look at it, the hiring practice, and I'm not putting every correctional officer down, but I'm telling you, there, there's a lot of them in there that truly are in there for the money. And once you get in there for the money and it's not about the people, it's not about, you know, following rules, it's not about doing the right thing, uh, you, you, you become a taskmaster and you become someone that is, you know, ill-compassionate. You don't, you don't have compassion uh, for uh, inmates. And I tell you, we have to come to a place, like you said, you alluded to, Cliff, we have to say enough is enough. Uh, if you're caught doing anything you shouldn't be doing or you're treating an inmate as though you're, you're the judge, you're the executor. You, I mean, you're the one that uh, is going to sentence this person again. Uh, you're going to pay for it. Either you're going to pay for it and we're going to let you go, or you're going to serve some time and see what it feels like to be an inmate. Exactly. And I, I mean, and that's what needs to happen. I mean, if you have, just like these prosecutors and these judges have, uh, you know, immunity while, while they're committing a crime and getting people put in prison, uh, falsely and, and wrongfully convicted and as long as they were doing their job you know everything is okay it's the same way with these correctional officers in these prisons if they do something that is a violation of a person human right then they should be held accountable but but the problem is that the bureau of prisons for federal and then also the state prisons they always tell them when they're coming we'll be there in two weeks so you're giving them time to clean up everything. Yeah, they clean up, they serve good food, they do all <laughs> kinds of stuff to make it look like they're following what they're supposed to do, and they're doing absolutely nothing that they're supposed to be doing. Exactly. It's, it's like, okay, you guys are doing nothing right, and then we give you two weeks to clean everything up. Like, okay, uh, you know, make sure that you have hot water, make sure things are cleaned up, make sure now, you know, everything is sanitized, make sure the bedding is good. Uh, put in some brand new pillows, get some food that's actually fit for human consumption, and they get to do all these things. And 
then you get the, you know, the the Bureau of Prisons or the state, and then they come in and they sign off. Oh yeah, you're you get A plus ratings for the way you're running your facility. And then the next day, they go they go right back to running it like a concentration camp. Like the people who are there don't matter. Like like uh, this is not human life. This is the life of an animal that uh, you know is worthless. And what it shows, it goes back to the culture of how of the training, the culture of what is accepted by the higher ups, and the fact that uh, the staff just really there is no human compassion for the most part. Those who are doing it right, like you know those inspectors that show up in the middle of the night, like Gary York, you got to commend them to say you basically because at that point they're putting their life on the line. Exactly. Because they are going to find some stuff out. They are going to expose some corruption. They're putting their lives on the line, and you have to commend them for doing it. No, without question. And ladies and gentlemen, on the other side of this break, we're going to continue this discussion. Feel free to call in to 347-838-8976. And I'll tell you what, Cliff and Dennis have hit it on the nail uh, in regards to this type of abuse. Ladies and gentlemen, AJC Radio does not shy away from the controversy. We in fact, we dig into it and expose the truth. We're coming back with Abuse Behind the Wall. Stay, stay here with us, folks. We're coming right back here on AJC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world. The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time. And I say high time that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. 
And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we are dealing with the abuse behind the wall. And I'll tell you right now, folks, this gets really serious here. And as we've been discussing here around the table here, uh, this is a problem. We're going to expose some of this corruption. Uh, We're hoping to have uh, Gary York, uh, the former New York correctional officer. He's an investigator for the Department of Corrections. Uh, there in New York, uh, and dealing with some things there, investigating things that we are seeing as major problems in this country. Uh, but as we get into this discussion, uh, we're going to go ahead and talk a little bit more, Dennis. Uh, how do we fix this problem when they, there seems to be no action at any level of authority or higher authority within these institutions? Whether you're talking about federal prisons with the Bureau of Prisons, uh, uh, former Director Samuels, uh, did absolutely nothing, uh, as we've seen a, a really a rise uh, in the conduct and things that are going on in these prisons uh, is unbelievable. When I go back to the state of, and you know what I think, honestly, I think these governors who oversee state prisons should be held accountable, should have independent uh, uh, panels, if you will, investigators in place to address these issues. If we can't do it at the federal level, then the governor of the state must be held accountable. Uh, And this is something that is just uncomprehendable, that these type of actions, human life, we keep talking about black lives matter. All lives matter initially. But when black lives are being killed and taken so needlessly, men and women in our prison system, uh, this is something that we have to take a look at. A couple of stories we're going to look at right now. Uh, and one of the story, uh, one of the stories involves uh, we act though people in prison deserve everything they get they don't. Did we read this story yet? Okay, let's go a little bit into that story. States here uh, that the, and this is written by Kathleen Malzon, July 26, 2016, says the child torture we witnessed on four corners is part of a continuum that allows sexual, psychological, social, and physical violence as a matter of course. Um, and uh, this goes into, uh, I guess, a, a young man that had been assaulted by four men. Uh, he's been attacked on a consistent basis. Uh, and again, these, these we're talking about now sexual assault, uh, which again, what do you do with that when you're dealing with sexual assault and guards look the other way or people look the other way in regards uh, to these type of issues? And it becomes torture. It becomes different things. Now, this particular story does not come out of the United States. We're going to come back to this one. Uh, But there's another story that we were looking at. Uh, Kern County inmate strangled to death in prison. Uh, This happened back in April in Delano, California. Authorities say an inmate 
at a central California prison was strangled, and the coroner's officials are calling his death a homicide. Friday's report follows the death of 27-year-old Johnny Montegegro. He was found unresponsive Wednesday in his cell at Kern Valley State Prison and was pronounced dead at the hospital. His cellmate is under investigation. Montegegro was serving a three-year sentence of possession of a gun by a felon. It's the fourth suspected homicide in nearly six months at the Delano Prison, which houses nearly 4,000 inmates. Three inmates died in November, December, and January. Prison officials say the deaths appear to be unrelated. Kern Valley is the same prison where officials say former NFL running back Lawrence Phillips killed himself in January while he was awaiting a murder trial. Uh, you're looking at three deaths a month in that facility? Unexplained. And you know what it sounds like to me? They are passing the buck, if you will, to the inmates because it makes it easier to think, well, he just died in prison. So let's just say his cell made his under investigation for the actual crime. Cliff, when you hear that, it kind of stinks all the way up. Yeah, because when does that investigation end? What is the result of that investigation? And who's being held accountable for someone dying in prison? I don't care how they died there. If another inmate kills someone in prison, then the prison should still be held accountable because you did not protect that person's life when they were uh, when they were there. And to say that someone else is under investigation, all that's doing is passing the buck. And like you said, say, okay, we're going to blame it on another inmate. Say he's already here locked up. So then they don't have to take the accountability for it. But they're, with the amount of cameras in the prison system, with the amount of guards, I mean, you hear stories all the time of guards walking around at wee hours of the night. They, you know, they're always uh, you know, patrolling what's going on in the system. How is it you don't know how a person dies there? J- just like with uh, the uh, the woman's name, uh, I forget her name, that um, that you were talking about that that died from the in the at the college campus. Um, that that basically, you know, she got stopped for a traffic infraction at the college campus. What was her name, Lamont? Uh, uh, Sandra Bland. Yeah. Yes. Now they found now that okay, now the officer that signed the paperwork to say he checked on her an hour earlier. Now he's finally came, come out and say, well, I lied. I didn't check on her an hour earlier. So they, you got all this stuff going on in prison. Who is being held accountable? Now we're going to see if this officer gets put up on charges and say that you were complicit in well, her death. Here's the problem. This is why no one believes she killed herself. Exactly. Now, if it was simply a case that you walked in the cell and the lady was there dead, there's no need to change the story. Whenever you have people changing the story, it is because an untruth has been told. I have no reason to say, well, I was there an hour before, so I know she killed herself. But now you come back and say, well, I was not there. You know why? Cameras are going to show that coming in and out of that solitary confinement, wherever she was. This is why there is a mistrust in the system, in the prison system, to believe anything that comes out the mouth of these folks. And we're going to dig even deeper. Right now, joining us. Uh, we were talking earlier about Mr. Gary York. He's been a, a, a huge, uh, uh, really, he's part of the family here, has been on our program on a couple of occasions, and uh, we're getting ready to bring him on. He has some extensive experience uh, into uh, the prison system and as a correctional officer. Gary, are you with us? Yes, sir. Can you hear me okay? Hear you very clear. Thank you, Gary. We appreciate you taking a few moments uh, to join us tonight on this topic of abuse behind the wall, and uh, I'll tell you what, I uh, understand you served in the United States Army from 1978 to 1987, 
was honorably discharged at the rank of staff sergeant from the military police corps. Let me first say from AJC Radio, we salute you for your service uh, to this nation and to this country. We appreciate that. Uh, also, and started a career in the Department of Corrections as correctional officer, promoted to probation officer, later a senior probation officer, was promoted once again to senior prison inspector. Where the next 12 years, you conducted criminal, civil, and administrative investigations in many state prisons. And uh, we are honored to have you with such an impressive resume, if you will, of experience. And I'm going to give you the floor and let you talk uh, to our listeners about what we're talking about tonight, abuse behind the wall, things you have encountered, well, things you have seen that, that motivated you to do what you do. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, you're talking about a topic that's dear to my heart. I've, I've been on a quest and, you know, I'm just a little speck on this earth trying to fight uh, a situation uh, of trying to stop corruption within the prison systems. And here's the thing I want to start out with, and I think we've talked about this before. We know there's a lot of good, honest officers out there and hardworking officers. So for you guys, we're not talking about you. I'm talking about the ones that decide to cross the line and uh, get into corruption and inmate abuse and um, I've been listening to uh, what you've been saying, and I have to agree with everything you've said uh, so far tonight, and you've said it very well. Uh, you know, we have federal and state laws that indicate it is a duty for us to investigate crime in the prison system. But does that always happen? Well, no, it does not always happen. And then we wonder why, why would high officials in the prison system, which um, – I have, and I wrote about it in my book also, but I have investigated uh, crimes in prison that were covered up by high prison officials, and uh, I've been called all kinds of names. I've had all kinds of threats uh, against me, but um, I still uh, investigated the cases and sent them in, and I still uh, uh, wrote the book, whether they wanted me to write it or not. And uh, the reason I believe that a lot of these people cover up things are one of the small reasons is they fear that they'll lose their job. And then another thing I discovered is people in higher positions, such as captains, uh, assistant wardens, and even secretaries of the entire Department of Corrections, which we had one here in Florida go to prison for eight years uh, for, 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 for a change the system and the law finally worked, but it took many years to finally catch this 30-year veteran who ended up going from warden to running the whole Florida Department of Corrections. He was appointed by uh, Jeb Bush to take over the Florida Department of Corrections, and he ended up uh, in prison for eight years for covering up inmate abuse, covering up reports of abuse of inmates, embezzling money from the inmate uh, funds that were uh, taken during visitation on weekends from the uh, canteen fund, and uh, he finally went to prison. But another reason I believe they they fear the loss of power. And somebody mentioned power earlier, and they were right on the money. You know, they get this power of control not only over the inmates but over the everything. And and when something goes bad, they're in fear of losing that power. No, no, absolutely, Gary. And, and again, this is something that seems to be running out of control, and this is something that we have to deal with. Uh, and I, I agree with you that, that, you know, you would think, and this is what's becoming a problem in this country, 
every place that is supposed to be peace uh, to protect, to promise to serve and protect and ensure safety in these prisons. We're talking about uh, loved ones, somebody's brother, somebody's father, somebody's mother, their sister, their cousin, their sister, whatever the case is. We expect the system, in spite of the mistakes that have been made by these men, and we are finding now in the prison system that you have a huge amount of people that are not even supposed to be there who are suffering at the hand of this type of dictatorship, if you will, that I believe comes uh, from the, really from these wardens who have uncontrollable power to do what they want and to run the facilities as they choose. And I think that's where the corruption is. What are your thoughts, well, uh, Gary, on the governor of these state you prisons? Got you got my mind going on that one. <laughs> well, uh, you, hit, you hit another button. That you hit another button there because there's another investigation uh, that I wrote about that happened where the warden was actually the one who put together what I called uh, the family in my book. I nicknamed them the family because that's what they ended up being called uh, when we were finally able to to find out who the family was, and when it hit the newspapers, they were nicknamed the family, sort of a mafia-type group. Sure. That the warden actually put two captains in charge and uh, two sergeants and six officers, and these ten correctional staff were actually hit men. Any inmates that gave trouble to anyone or what they considered trouble. Now, you and I may not think what they did was trouble, but... They were out looking for trouble, these officers. And they were beating inmates and um, Gary, finally Gary, beat one over five-day period until he passed away. Gary. And, uh, yes. I, I do have a question here. Am I hearing you correctly that a task force of sorts of mercenaries were hired in the prison to beat and hurt and to assault and ultimately kill Inmates who well, were called—they weren't hired. You know, they were already correctional staff in the prison, receiving their state paycheck. But, but they, they were set aside. Were, they were—they were—they uh, were approved by the warden to go out and handle what they were calling problem inmates. They wow. were actually—and it's in—it's in my book, and it's all true. And I didn't change the names. The real names are in there, the real people, the real prison, the real warden. I didn't change any names. It's all in there in my book. But what they did was uh, they would go get other inmates out of a dorm, take them to another dorm, and have them beat up inmates. And then they would take those inmates that were their hitmen and take them to the uh, chow hall, to the dining facility, and uh, have uh, extra food made up for them. Maybe they'd get extra blankets, extra canteen. Sometimes the officers take their shirts off and go fist to fist with the inmates at night behind the door. This was allowed. Who was the warden? Really happened. Who was the warden? That warden was Mr. Uh, David Farkas of Charlotte Correctional Institution. If you just Google Charlotte Correctional Institution, Florida, Warden David Farkas, you should pull up a lot of newspaper articles on the investigation that I did on, on that whole uh, situation. And It'll I'm going to give you a family. Yeah, Gary, I'm going to give you a chance uh, before we let you go tonight. 
uh, to tell our listeners how to get your book uh, and get that information. Uh, it sounds like a good, a definitely serious, informative read uh, on this conduct. And it is unco- it sound when you said what you just said, uh, I'm thinking, man, is this Shawshank? I saw the movie. Well, I did too, and I looked at my wife the first time I saw Shawshank, and I said, what does this remind you of? And she said, oh my God, you know, that movie, we know that was fiction, the movie, but it's not so, it's not, it's very close. I always say Shawshank Redemption is very close. You know that captain that was on the roof with the inmates and wanted to throw right. the one inmate? Yeah, that's, that captain is Charlotte Correctional all over again, you know, and that warden is Warden mm-hmm. David Farkas all over again. Well, he did have the Holy Bible with him, uh, <laughs> which was supposed, somehow just – this is, this is a sick world, man, that uh, wardens – and you know they're there to oppress. Uh, I have found in the prison system through research, and this has become a modern-day uh, dictatorship of oppression uh, in, Americans, in America prisons. My question to you, Gary, is why do you think the story – is so tucked away. Why is, I mean, we, why, these are, you don't hear much about it. We got a story right here, uh, and I'm going to let you, I'm going to play a clip for you real quick, Gary. I want our listeners to hear okay. this clip, and I'm going to get your comments on this clip, dealing with uh, the, the issue, and we know George Bush came out with the violence, uh, the prison, uh, for, uh, Protection Prison Act of some sort that protects people from prison rape uh, in prisons. He right. put that in right. the law, sure. but rape seems to rape. Prison Rape Elimination Act, yes, sir. There we go, yeah. Prison Rape Elimination Act. And you will find here in this clip, they're talking about lawsuits uh, that have been brought and the problems that prison rape is being ignored by many states as a problem. Let's hear what they have to say, and I'm going to get your comments on it. Yes, sir. We now live in such an insane political environment that there is actually a debate about prison rape in this country. Are you pro-prison rape or anti-prison rape? Okay, now I get a load of how this issue uh, starts in the first place. Back in 2003, when George W. Bush was president, they passed a law that has huge bipartisan support called the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Makes sense. Seems like a lot of people would be in favor of that, and they were at the time. By 2012, it's finally uh, ready to be finalized. The requirements are in place, and they go to apply it. But then some Republicans wind up disagreeing. Okay, here's a quote. Some Republican governors continue to this day in 2015 to dodge the federal law that aims to prevent rape in U.S. correctional facilities. How is that possible? Now, here's an amazing fact about how much prison rape there is in the country. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, about 200,000 inmates were sexually abused in 2011. And that excludes kids who are particularly at risk for sexual assault when held in adult facilities. And that's the point of this law, to make sure that you bring that number down. And you don't want the kids in the adult facilities. That's part of the law. So that you reduce the number of rapes in prison. 200,000 a year is unbelievable. Yet, the Republican governors of these states say no. Arizona, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Nebraska, Texas, and Utah. Now, some of them make lame excuses like, oh, well, you know, in Utah, we've got a better way of preventing prison rape. Really? What is it? Okay, I don't really have an alternative, but still, I'm against this law. Uh, Obama's in favor of it, so I'm against it. It was Bush who passed it in the first place. Okay, but 
Indiana Governor Mike Pence was clear about why he didn't want to do it. Fully complying with the law, he said, would require, quote, redirection of millions of tax dollars currently supporting other critical needs for Indiana. In other words, I don't want to spend the money to protect people from being raped inside prison. Who cares? They're already inside prison. Rape them all you like. There's now a pro-rape contingent in America. Beyond insane. Well, there you have it. And, and Gary, if did I hear that correctly? I want to make sure you heard that, that Vice President uh, Pick, Donald Trump, in Indiana had a problem with this order by the president about prison rape. Did, I, did you hear that? Well, yeah, and I've heard a lot of administrative folks from different prisons complain about what a pain in the neck it is with the Prison Rape Elimination Act because of all the extra paperwork and all the reporting to the Federal mm-hmm. Bureau of Statistics. And I thought to myself, now, wait a minute. Uh, we, can't, we can't have that kind of attitude. Number one, it's our duty to protect the inmates. Uh, the simple care, custody, and control comes back. A judge sentences an inmate to prison. So a family member, if it was my family member going off to prison, I would really be praying every night that the officers are doing their job diligently and protecting my family member from rape, from abuse, and or from anything uh, that could harm them in prison. That's their job, and that's what what the the officers are there for. You know, I was a correctional officer in uniform at one time in a state prison before I got promoted up the line, and that's our job. We're not there to punish anyone, and. Uh, this Prison Rape Elimination Act has been put in place to get reports in and make more and better awareness for the staff, for the prison staff to be trained and know what to go out and look for and know how to stop rapes. So how can you not want to go along with this? You know, Now, maybe one day one of their sons will go into prison and they might change their mind then. Well, here's the problem, and I'm still stuck on Mr. Pence. Uh, select, and I, I don't know how this does not come up in the campaign, and I'm not going to turn political tonight, but I'll tell you straight up. You are the vice president of the United States, someone that would step into position of power if, for with some ever or out of the universe chance that Donald Trump gets elected president, hypothetically – you would step into the position as president of the United States, of all people. But you don't want to go through the – if I heard the numbers correctly, 200,000? Did I That's hear right. that? Right? 200,000 rapes a year? And the younger inmates between 21 and 30 are at the highest risk. First-time offender offenders in prison for your first time in prison – are at the highest risk, and of course, uh, ch- children or teenagers uh, going to adult prisons are at a super high risk. Wow! I'll yeah, tell you, it's, go ahead. it's a bad thing. And when integrity and the law don't stand on the same side, we've got a problem. 
No, absolutely, absolutely. Dennis, you had something. Yeah, that was just uh, as you were talking, uh, Mr. York. It just it amazes me how uh, the lack of compassion, like you said, uh, you know, you're, you're given the position uh, to not, you know, I know you got to control them, uh, custodian, and then you got to care. But the problem is, it seems as though in our prison systems that there's really not a care. It's because we're not looking at the inmate as being a human being. We're looking at the inmate as a felon. We're looking at the inmate as someone who did this great crime, you know, and, and, and how do, how do our correction officers even know what crime they committed? Let's, you know, maybe they talk to them or something like that, but it's sad to say that, you know, if we don't come to a place where there's accountability, we start making sure that, if, if you're going to be one of the bad correction officers, like you said, not all correction officers are bad. They, they do their job. But if you're going to be one of the bad ones and we catch you, you're going to pay the price. How do you pay the price? You serve time. You broke the law. You serve time also. Then you feel what the rest of all, you know, the other inmates are going through. And that's just my thought. And maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a little out no. there, but I think we got to start holding people accountable and saying, okay, enough is enough. I gave you this job because I thought that you were able and you were compassionate enough to make sure that the inmates were not only, you know, secure or make sure nobody got in trouble or not only for our lives as correctional officers, but the lives of inmates. But they don't even care if an inmate dies. It, it really doesn't matter. You know, OK, another inmate died. He was killed by another inmate, regardless of the how that inmate died. There's no compassion. And until we get people in there, which there are some in there, but until we put rules in our prison system that says that if you do this, this is what you're going to get paid with. Well, I'll put it it down on the line. You know, I'm not afraid to. Now, again, I have a lot of correctional officers that still keep up with me on the social network, but guess what? Those are the ones that thank me for catching the corrupt officers. So I am in touch with a lot of correctional officers who thank me for catching the corrupt who made uh, made a dangerous situation for everyone in the prison. But there are some officers in my career that I've heard say, an only good inmate is a dead inmate. And then I've heard others say, well, I'm not worried about that. He died, now that saves us a lot of taxpayers' money. And that's true, true statements. Wow. We need more Gary Yorks out there uh, looking in our prison systems and uh, exposing the corruption. Uh, like uh, uh, Cliff alluded to earlier, if, you, if, I, if I tell you I'm coming, you're going to be ready for me. That's going to be the greatest inspection ever. We're going to get all A's. Okay. We're going to get all goals. But if, if, if I don't tell you I'm coming, and that's what we need to do, and I don't know how we do that. Um, Lamont talked about it earlier on a state or federal level, level. But some way, somehow, we got to get it so that we start looking at our prison systems and, and, and you know, unannounced. And I, th- I think that really helps out a lot. Well, I, I did that. And, you know, I don't understand why it can't be done nationwide if I did it. If I was assigned a case and they said Officer so-and-so was bringing drugs in or Officer so-and-so was abusing an inmate, uh, I wouldn't call and say, hey, this is Inspector York. Guess what? Today's Monday. I can't get out there till next week, Tuesday, but I'll be there at 3 o'clock next week, Tuesday. Now, that's really stupid. <laughs> exactly. That's really stupid because what are they going to do? 
the in, they're going to get the inmate all fixed up at medical and try to get his bruises healed. They're going to clean everything up. They're going to get rid of all the evidence. No, I don't want to call them. I want to show up and walk through the front gate and head straight to that dorm and see what I find out, see what I see before they clean up the situation. No, absolutely. And I'll tell you, uh, we got a uh, study uh, back in June, at the end of June of this year, a uh, Rikers inmate says a guard sexually assaulted him after he objected to a racial slur. Shared the story a little bit last week. Gentlemen walking through the prison uh, is after it says one week after a leaked report exposed Riker Island's history of failing to address its persistent sex abuse problems. A current inmate at the jail facility is alleging that he was sexually assaulted by uh, a guard after he protested the guard's use of a racial slur against another inmate. And he says several other officers did nothing to stop the assault. Observed the assault and did absolutely nothing. Apparently, this information was actually leaked. Gary, on the other side of the break, we're going to take a break now. Joining us here after the break, uh, at the top of the hour, we're going to have uh, George. Wow. Let me pronounce this last name. Malik. Malincrot. Malincrot. There we go. It's spelled a little differently. He's going to be joining us. He's actually... Uh, one of the gentlemen that was uh, working and fighting against the gentleman in Florida uh, who was actually, uh, who we talked about earlier, who was actually cooked in the shower uh, in, in a Florida uh, jail uh, facility there. We're going to get your thoughts on that. Uh, you got time to come back with us? Oh, I'm fine, and I know George. We email each other every now and then to discuss that. All right. More than happy to include you both on the call. Once he comes in, we'll introduce you. I mean, we'll let him know that you're on the air with us. And we'll get into a little bit more dialogue. Folks, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. Tonight, we deal with an issue, abuse behind the wall. We've been fortunate tonight to be joined by uh, Arthur, ex-correctional officer in prison, Inspector Gary York, giving us some true insight into that abuse. We're coming right back here on AJC Radio. We'll be right back. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. 
And thus, it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely, there must be a less costly approach to addressing drug use in America. anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 855- 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. With one call, you don't have to be a victim anymore. These fights are getting worse. I don't know what to do. With one call, you can end the cycle of violence. We're glad you called. The first thing we want to do is to ensure your safety. With one call, you can change everything. To speak to a domestic abuse victim advocate, contact your local family advocacy program. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help.
Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Of a- this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And when you hear that music, folks, someone is in search for justice. And I'll tell you, McGarrett's on the scene. And tonight, AJC Radio is on the scene to find answers to a corrupt system. And we call it behind- the abuse behind the wall of America's prisons and jails all across the United States. And joining us uh, we have the honor of having Gary York. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Lisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart, and Dennis Merritt. And we're going to continue this discussion as we go forward here to address this very important matter. Uh, Gary, you still with us? Yes, sir, I am. All right, and thanks for joining us. And also joining us right now, we're very honored uh, to have George Mallinckrodt joining us as well. Uh, honestly, working in a situation we mentioned earlier uh, the Darren Rainey situation down there in Florida uh, actually just uh, horrifically murdered uh, by correctional officers down there. A li- it put in a living uh, oven, if you will, of a hot shower that cooked the flesh off this young man uh, while guards set out the cell and laughed. And uh, George, are you with us? Yes, I am. Great to be back on the show and great to hear Gary York again. We were on together quite a while ago. Well, look, yes, we sir. Back. <laughs> yes, go ahead, Gary. I was just telling George hello. I'm sorry. No, no <laughs> worries. No worries. And uh, we appreciate you folks joining us. And folks, uh, feel free, uh, George and Gary, to get involved in this dialogue as we now discuss the situation down there, uh, George, in Florida. I believe, yeah, I believe it was down there in Florida uh, with Darren Rainey. And what's the latest on that case? And has anyone been held accountable for the death of this young man? Yes, well, the latest is, uh, first of all, I returned from the four-year anniversary of his murder. That happened on June 23rd, and we held a protest rally in front of State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle's office. She's been sitting on this case for a number of years. Still, no charges have been brought, and in fact, about six months ago, Uh, The autopsy was finalized some three and a half years after the man was killed. And we've only uh, gotten, you know, scattered details from a leaked version that called Darren Rainey's scalding death accidental. And uh, we, quite frankly, everybody that's followed this case in Miami, uh, Howard Simon of the ACLU, Uh, A number of people are very upset at this autopsy, which seems to indicate that the coroner took the guard's side of the story and ignored what the patients adjacent to this uh, torture chamber said all along, that this, this man was begging for his life you know, please let me out, please let me out. And, and finally the man just collapsed, on the on the floor of the shower face up and 90% of his skin had peeled off. Nine, did you say 90%? How is that? 90%. Accident? And an, an inmate uh, orderly in the unit said he was uh, forced by guards to clean up Darren Rainey's skin and he put it in Darren Rainey's shoe and he threw it out before the Miami-Dade uh, detectives came to investigate. In other words, they, they cleaned up the crime scene, and that's not supposed to happen by DOC rules. 
and how is it that wow. you you have the cl- the crime scene be the crime scene being cleaned up, modified before uh, law enforcement gets there? You have uh, witnesses, several witnesses, not just one person who happens to maybe have have something out for these guards, but you have several witnesses saying, "I heard this man begging for his life." I heard the guards uh, laughing and discussing, you know, how do you like it now? Now I bet you'll do what we're going, what we tell you to do. You have all of these things going on. Then some kind of way you get a coroner to sign off on what the correction officers told them. Where is the independent party that says, you know what? I am, I'm, I'm coming in from Canada, from space, somewhere, (laughs) somebody who can say, okay, we are going to do an investigation on what really happened here. And given the evidence, I mean, the only way to do an investigation is follow the evidence. When you have this much evidence and this many witnesses to a crime, to a murder, then how do you say it was an accident? And, And where is the governor of Florida in this situation? Oh, I, I agree, and I act, actually spoke to the coroner myself directly, Dr. Liu, and I filled her in on how the unit works because, of course, I work there, and I told her, I said, listen, these guards are the only one who can put uh, Darren Rainey in the shower, and, and they're the only ones who can take them out. And so the other thing that I tried to do very early on, that was only a couple months after it happened, I met face-to-face with FBI agents. They passed on an investigation. I told them everything I heard from a coworker that is in the first chapter of my book. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, well, wait a second here. Isn't the point of an investigation to get to the bottom of this? And, you know, they passed. Uh, and, and Governor Scott, he's, he's been sweeping this under the rug the whole time. Uh, he and this is go, goes back uh, to 2014 when the story broke and and when the Miami Herald not only uncovered what had happened in my unit but then expanded their investigation across the state to multiple suspicious deaths and Governor Scott spent all of the time that that he he could just sweeping it under the rug because he was up for. Uh, re-election and Charlie Crist I think made a huge mistake by not uh, harping on this issue and and neither candidate talked about it so you know it's it's uh, you know hear no evil see no evil wow that's unbelievable Uh, uh, Gary your thoughts on this well you know this happened in Florida and uh, that's where I did uh, my investigations for many years and I'll tell you what, what that unfortunate story uh, that you just heard is one of several that occurred. And uh, George is absolutely correct. Uh, it was ignored as well as some other situations that were ignored. And the reason I know it was ignored as well as what George said is there were four senior prison inspectors in the state of Florida who had the same title and job that I had before I retired. And... They used the Whistleblower Act, and they reported high-ranking officials in the Florida Department of Corrections for covering up allegations of inmate abuse, failing to investigate allegations of inmate abuse, and corruption. Now, 
What do you think happened to those four prison inspectors who turned and said, hey, I, I told you about this abuse going on, and you're not assigning me a file to go investigate. They were demoted, fired, and et cetera. So they went and sued the Florida Department of Corrections for retaliation, and they won. Now, uh, I'm still waiting to hear the final results on whether they get reinstated back into senior prison inspectors or if they're just going to win a uh, certain amount of money and move on. But this is what happens to the investigators who they themselves are saying, wait a minute, folks, hey, to our bosses up there in Tallahassee, we need to investigate these things, and you're telling us not to. So, George, uh, I think that falls right in line with what you're discussing. Yeah, absolutely. And they were hit with like six internal affairs investigations the day after they testified under oath in front of the Criminal Justice Committee in Tallahassee. Right. Right. And everything was reported to legislature. They had a when legislature was going uh, last year and this year, they, they've been told over and over and over, hey, you've got to do something to stop this abuse that's going on in the prison. So no. it's not that they don't know about it. Right, and I, I think the the one thing that uh, the current secretary, Julie Jones, is not addressing is the deeply embedded culture of brutality. Uh, I call it the malevolent minority, and they basically control the DOC through intimidation and retaliation. There are there are many, many fine correctional officers, but they will not speak out against abuses that they observe because they will be retaliated against. Well, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this, George and Gary, uh, and I I would beg to differ on that point. Uh, If you see wrong or injustice and do nothing, you are complicit in that act, and you are bound for that position to speak. If I see a murder and I see somebody get killed, this goes beyond me losing my job. This is the human thing to do. I beg to differ. An officer who fails to speak out on corruption is as guilty as those that, that levy that abuse against a person. And I don't, and I don't think George uh, disagrees, and I don't either. And we had a lot of officers lose their jobs for not reporting uh, um reporting a crime that they saw or misconduct that they saw. But I think what George is trying to say is these guys are scared to death, but that's no excuse. They need to come forward, but I think they're afraid nobody's going to back them up. No, no, no. And and when I uh, wouldn't let a beating of one of my patients go, they fired me two months later. And even though I spoke to the warden, Warden Cummings at the time, and told him about abuse in the unit, uh, they still got rid of me. See, and, and, and you know, that, that's the thing. How do, how do you win? I mean, you try to do the right thing. You would assume that you would have someone on your side to back you up in your position. And you're being honest, at least look into it. I mean, prove me wrong, in other words. Well, But I tell you, it's just sad that, you know, the system is, is so corrupt in some instances that, like you said, the whistleblower, I mean, wow, do I lose my job? If I lose my job and 
what what happens? I'm trying to tell you what's going on, but yet now you're going against me. I mean that's well, that's unheard of. Well, that's, Gary, it shouldn't be that way. Well, Gary, I'll tell you this, and and again, I understand. My point was to clarify that that's something that you or or excuse me, Gary and George, that's something that neither one of you approve of. Uh, but right. I I think understanding your point that right. the fear, and this is what we say all the time on this program, George and Gary, is the culture. We keep talking about that word because it is so – the culture of an institution or a facility or a running unit, if you will, is very difficult to break. And once that culture is you, – if you speak up, if you tell the truth, this is going to happen to you because that is the culture that has been put in place. And that is the hardest thing to penetrate through is the, is the, is the brass wall of culture. Because and I well, think, think not, go ahead. I was just gonna say, don't think that goes on just in Florida. Take Los Angeles sure. County, for example. The sheriff mm-hmm. Lee Baca of Los Angeles County, the FBI came in to investigate allegations of inmate abuse in their jail, the largest uh, county jail in California, and he told his officers to do anything they could to get this FBI agent off the case and uh, to stop her from investigating and find something to discredit her. And guess what? They they weren't able to do it. The sheriff is uh, facing possible prison. His second man in charge got a five-year prison sentence, and 21 other officers from the uh, jail, the Los Angeles jail, have been convicted of federal crimes and corruption. Now, when you have a sheriff of the largest uh, county jail in California trying to cover up abuse. What's going on? No, 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 absolutely. And uh, and again, going back to that culture and the fear, that should not be happening within our within our justice system. And if you have officers scared, and that means if I'm scared to tell, who says I'm not going to impart in this type of abuse? I'm motivated on both sides. If I don't partake. And somebody snitches me out, then I'm going to lose my job. And then if right. I speak up against it, I'm going to lose my job and be retaliated against. That is right. a very dangerous combination for the safety and security of thousands and millions of people's loved ones that are in behind bars in this country. That's exactly right. And part of my objective, uh, I'm in New York now, and I'm reaching out to various media personalities and doing interviews, I want to educate the public as to what's happening behind the bars, especially when it pertains to the treatment of the severely mentally ill. And Darren Rainey, being paranoid schizophrenic, falls into that category. Um, Another category that that I I found when I worked in prison, and I'm, I'm looking at it nationwide as well, is that men and women that are Uh, in prison often come out worse than when they went in. And here in New York, we have the example of Khalif Browder, who was thrown into Rikers at the age of 16 for almost three years. He was in solitary for two of those years, which is contraindicated for somebody so young. He left prison, and within a short time later, he committed suicide. And this Absolutely. is just not an isolated example. This is happening all over. And then we, what, then we wonder why the recidivism rate is so high. 
we've got to help people become better people in prison with training programs and counseling and medication when necessary. And this is just not happening consistently across the board. No, it's not. And uh, the gentleman, the young man you just mentioned who took his life, my understanding was he was never charged. With that a crime. is correct. And it, and it was doubtful that he even committed a crime. Wow. And here's, the, here's what I really don't get. You send a young man, not guilty of a crime, number one, but you send him into right. one of the worst prisons with the reputation of death. And I'm going to tell you, that prison is responsible. Whoever put him there, judge, prosecutor, whoever, and to not even be charged with a crime mentally destroyed this young man. Who destroyed Absolutely. him in solitary confinement. The judge should be disbarred. The prosecutor should be disbarred. What is he doing locked up? Exactly. What and is, what stops him from doing it again? But where is the presumption? I said this a long time ago. The presumption of innocence, that bus left the station a long time ago. Doesn't, doesn't even work anymore. This is a young man who's been accused of a crime. But the presumption of innocence, per the Constitution... He is presumed innocent, but he felt you left him in an adult prison at Rikers Island in the hole, and he shut down. Who is going to be absolutely? That's your thoughts you know, on that. I, yeah, I I was speaking to his brother Akeem at uh, a meeting a couple nights back, and he said that when his brother got home, he put these empty water bottles and cans on a shelf in his room and he would have a dialogue with these bottles and cans similar to uh, that movie with Tom Hanks where he was talking to a soccer ball. Human beings need contact with other human beings and he was denied that by the New York correction system and that's what drove him to suicide. Wow. Well, folks, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Gary and George, can you come back with us on the other side? Sure. Yes, sir, no problem. Enjoying the conversation. Ladies and gentlemen of America, feel free to dial in tonight, 347-838-8976. That's 347-838-8976, as we are getting really some good but troubling information uh, from two experts, if you will, in my opinion, uh, and advocates for justice seeking that answer uh, author Gary York, uh, also former ex-correctional officer and prison inspector, also George Malincrot, author, uh, and doing some things uh, and involved with the Darren Rainey uh, horrific murder down there in Florida. We're going to continue the discussion. Abuse Behind the Wall continues after this break. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight 
against wrongful convictions. Call or just calls today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we deal with a troubling issue. We are honored and blessed 
uh, to have uh, George Mallinckrodt as well as Gary York giving some information, folks, that is definitely informative. And we're going to give you an opportunity. Uh, Gary has actually has a book uh, that he has written that talks a lot about the corruption uh, in the in America's prison system. We're going to he's going to give you we're going to give him a chance rather to give you that information uh, before the end of this segment. That way. Uh, you can go out and get that book definitely right away. And also George Mallinckrodt uh, also, uh, I believe, has a, some books out there that are available. I think the books are important. They're informative. Uh, will help you understand America's criminal justice system. And Gary and George, welcome back. Thank you, Thank you. very much. Okay. And here we go as we continue this discussion. I'm going to play a clip for you here. And uh, I just want to get your thoughts uh, on – uh, certain things that are going on uh, in the prison. Actually, uh, Gary, uh, this clip actually, I believe you're in this clip talking about uh, the prison training and rotation of officers. It's a very short one. We're going to get your thoughts further on that uh, discussion. Let's hear, let's hear this clip. Well, it is a strain and a stress, and uh, the way a prison trains its officers really shows a lot about how the prison is. I would hope, I'm not in Colorado, but I would hope that they train their officers constantly and say, okay, if we're going to rotate you, you're, you're in supermax, you have this set of rules you go by, but when you go to the work camp or the camp where you're in with people that are for possession of marijuana, have not harmed anyone, um, you need to learn how to adjust yourself to get the mode down to the level of the camp because these guys are not violent offenders they're not violent criminals and it all goes back to the training of the facility so i would hope that the facility is training their officers properly and giving them stress classes and uh, an, an avenue of uh, training that can help them cope with move each month or week or whatever their rotation is and welcome back uh gary uh, explain, yes, sir. To the, explain to the listeners exactly what you were talking about there. Uh, the clip speaks pretty much for itself, but give a little insight on that. Well, officers do have a stressful job. You know, we're talking about uh, things that uh, deal with abuse and corruption, but let's get to all officers now, and let's get to the officers mainly that are uh, honest and try to do uh, the right job. Their job can be stressful. They are attacked at times, and they do have to worry about being harmed sometimes, but their job is also stressful because of staff shortage, not enough people, they're working double shifts, and they need proper training on how to handle their mannerisms and how to get enough rotation in there so that they don't have an officer who is stressed out on the job. You know, if you're stressed out and you're on your last thread, we don't want you to explode and take it out on the inmates. So we need to have proper training for supervisors, try to keep their officers rotated to get enough sleep, and how to handle inmates, how to have interpersonal skills with inmates. You know, you can't walk into a dorm and go, listen here, this is what you're going to do, and you're going to do it, or else I'm going to beat your ass, excuse my language. That's not the way we handle things. You know, we have to have officers trained to be professionals. And, you know, it's funny. You can de-escalate a situation with just words. I know you can't de-escalate every situation, but I bet you nine out of ten times you can de-escalate a bad thing, a bad situation with just using proper interpersonal skills, and, and, and the officers need to know how to do that. And, George, your thoughts on that? 
Uh, Gary couldn't be more on target there. Um, what we've seen in Florida is the opposite in many cases where they're trying to control the population through violence and intimidation, and all that causes is more violence. In fact, uh, at the Franklin Correctional Institution, there's been a number of prison riots in the last six months. And, you know, sure, the facility is crumbling and the food's no good, but as I mentioned before, this culture of brutality and disrespect toward the inmates creates a powder keg situation. And quite frankly, I'm, not su I'm, I'm a little surprised that, that more of these incidents haven't occurred throughout Florida. If you treat a man with respect, he's more than likely going to treat you back with respect. That's what I found on my unit. I treated all my patients, all the men that I cared for with respect, and they didn't take advantage of me, and they treated me with respect back. Well, I'll share this story with you folks, Gary and George, and our listeners. Uh, I was wrongfully convicted in this state of Colorado. I did seven years for a crime I did not commit. Uh, I was exonerated, found uh, the case was overturned in the Court of Appeals. Uh, I went through a new trial, found not guilty, exonerated every charge that sent me to prison for seven years. Not one charge stuck, not one. And I've been completely exonerated uh, in that particular case. But I'll tell you what I observed. Uh, at a prison that I was at, I was at six different prisons here in Colorado. There was a prison I went to where the warden twice a year brought in steak dinners uh, that were cooked by officers in the back on the grill. Uh, and we had steak. We had baked potatoes. I mean, stuff you're not going to get uh, in the regular uh, ordinary menu, if you will, by the Department of Corrections. I can tell you, and, and, and uh, George, I agree with you completely. The morale in that prison that day, you, people are walking down. These are inmates. Some are killers. Some are there for a variety of crimes. But that day, they walked down that hallway whistling, skipping, going back to their unit, with uh, uh, maybe a steak that because you can buy, get as many as you want, really, and you could take the rest back to your cell. And man, folk, you thought Santa Claus had came through that prison. There was nobody going to the right. hole. There was nobody getting in a fight. You know what? It was just peaceful. And they had another incident where they allowed people to come, uh, where we could order McDonald's. Well, McDonald's is Thanksgiving <laughs> in prison, and yeah. uh, I remember. I remember they delivered the, the, the McDonald's that day. Man, folks were sitting down in the pods, in the units, legs crossed, smiling, patting people on the back. It is the little things. And I agree with you, George. If you treat people with respect, this was something that was a vision of this warden. To, and he said to us, if you turn your lights off, if you're not in your cell, and our bill goes down significantly uh, every month, we're going to do something else for you. We're going to do this at Christmas. We're going to do that. These are things that make a difference, and people really don't understand it. I understand it because I lived it. I saw it. Uh, so, and there were guards there that I, that I had a great deal of respect with. One of the places I was at, uh, Captain Fisher was his name, and he would always stop me in the hall. And I told him, man, I'm going home. And I said, I'm not guilty of this stuff. He's one of the guards that took time and talked to me. And actually, there was a young man. 
who got to the prison, he, they called me and they said, we want you to kind of mentor this guy. Let him know what to do and what not to do while you're here. He said, we, we observed you. I believe when somebody makes you feel, and they had a thing, and I, I'll end it on this, and I want to get your thoughts, Gary and George. They had a lot of veterans in that prison that had served time fighting for this nation. And there was different dinners held for these veterans within the prison system. And my cellmate happened to be a veteran. They said, man, I can bring somebody for the dinner. I said, man, can I go with you? And uh, the respect that they said, we want to thank you. That's how the warden came in and talked to those veterans. Thank you for your service. Regardless of what path you may have chosen or mistakes you have made, we want to say thank you for your service. Gary, George, when you hear that, and it speaks, George, to your point, you, you treated every inmate with respect. If we can yeah, that, get, go ahead, George. Yeah, that that's that's those are great stories. And uh, in Florida, what I've heard from uh, inmates who write me letters is there there's a variance from prison to prison as to the amount of respect that an inmate gets from guards and administration, and that filters down from the warden. If you have a warden like the one you described who cares about the men and really wants to make sure they don't come back and he takes steps to, uh, you know, make them feel respected and then he follows up with uh, down the chain of command, you're going to have a prison that's run pretty good. And there are some, some better run prisons in Florida than others. No, absolutely. And I think that, and Gary, your thoughts on that is you hear that type of attitude, it would have made your job probably a lot easier. I'll tell you this. I know you went in for inspection. This is what they did at Sterling Facility, and that was the first prison I was actually at. Again, ladies and gentlemen listening, wrongfully convicted, uh, found not guilty in a new trial. Um, at Sterling, they had inspections, uh, and I think, uh, Gary, this will speak to your experience. But the captain in the kitchen, the lieutenant, never forget that guy. We cleaned that kitchen up and down. And you know what he did? He had us come in and he had, the cooks, he had the cooks brought in to cook us anything we wanted out of the diet kitchen. Burritos, quesadillas. Right. You know, he said, man, I'm going to feed you. Thank you for coming out here and doing this hard work. Not just getting there. And there's there nothing and- wrong. Yeah. Go ahead. And that's, that's, no, that's a great thing to do because that builds the morale and, and it, takes away a lot of hostility now there's i'll give you three real quick feel good stories because you know we've talked about some bad things what i've seen gary gary you're breaking up all now you're, yeah you're breaking up can a little bit speaking down for me can you hear me now yeah that's better go ahead okay three quick stories when uh when they had fish fries for the inmates here in florida that was a real good day, and it was very similar to what you're talking about. And when they had Tony Dungy come in to the Florida prisons, he would travel around to different prisons in Florida and speak to the inmates. Boy, that really was a good morale thing for the inmates. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, Tony Dungy, I don't know if he still is, but at one time was really big in going to the prisons and talking to the inmates. Wow. Yeah, he, was, he was a coach for Tampa Bay, wasn't he? Correct, yeah, and uh, and uh, and also um, with the uh, Colts when they won the Super Bowl. Right. Wow. Yeah. And he would come to Polk Correctional and talk to the inmates 
spend an afternoon talking to them about getting out of prison, moving forward with your life, getting this in your past. And I'll tell you what, that was some that that was really good for the inmates. They would walk away with their heads up after Tony Dungy got through talking to them. That's awesome. Yeah, that's inspirational to have somebody like that come in. And, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people that would uh, volunteer in prison if if they knew that those opportunities, if they knew that, that the men really needed them. Um, you know, I, I just did a show with a, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, journalist and author. His name is Chris Hedges. And he, he's taught at Columbia University, and he teaches uh, writing over in a supermax in New Jersey. So you've got a lot of people that, that would want to come in and make a difference. No, absolutely. We had the mo- no, go ahead, please. We had, the motorcycle, we had the motorcycle ministries come in as well, and they would come in and do a lot of good things for the inmates in Florida. You know, if we can get this attitude contagious in America, there's a pastor here, Pastor Rose Banks, Colorado Springs Fellowship Church, uh, Pastor Banks went to the, uh, I believe, Cliff, you can attest to this, to the Florence uh, prison uh, on the high side and actually talked to inmates there, was actually there for five years. Is that correct? Yes, to uh, to the, what was it, the maximum. The maximum side. ADX. So the the ADX, which is, the mm-hmm. you know, the, the real lockup, not medium, not sure. low, but basically the the very high right before you get to, to mm-hmm. the supermax. Yeah. And uh, we went there for five years. And, and the thing that really stands out to you is all it takes is for these men to feel like somebody, somebody cares. cares. Mm-hmm. Somebody is looking at me as a human being that if I made a mistake, sure, we all made mistakes, young, old, you know, some people continue to make mistakes, but if somebody looks at you, every person and says, you know, you're still a human being. I still care for you. I, I, I realize that there's still hope for you, and I want you to make it. That really, really stands out. But I think where the prison system fail um, in some aspects, uh, like you said, Lamont, in, in, your, um, in your examples, and, uh, and you as well, Gary, is that it has to start at the top. The warden has to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we want to reward the men for making sure that there's not a riot or for doing their job well. We want to make sure, I mean, everybody wants to feel appreciated. And, you know, when you're in there and you're working for pennies, you're locked up, you're away from your family. And sure, maybe in, in, uh, in a lot of situations where, you know, you did the crime, but it's still human nature says, if I do something good, at least tell me, you know what, I, I appreciate you cleaning up the kitchen because, you know, you could leave it like a rat's nest and we could have rodents in here. We could have all type of bugs. We could have men getting sick from food poisoning. But you guys take pride in what you do. And as a warden, as a staff, that's appreciated. And it, it just takes a little bit. And like you said, uh, George, it's just that little bit of respect. You respect me and understand where I'm coming from, and I'll reciprocate that. And so many times, I mean, that is what you see, but it starts at the top. It's the culture of these institutions. And if you, if you have like sheriffs like Sheriff Baca, the way he runs his, that he was running uh, his, his jail, then that trickles all the way down and the inmates feel it and the facility feels it to where now you have a rundown facility is full of corruption and nobody's being treated right. Or you have a facility where the, uh, the people in control are saying, hey, 
we want to run this like an establishment where there's appreciation and reward for doing good, no matter what your situation or, or what reason you're in here for. Yeah, and it makes your job a lot easier uh, uh, for these officers. We're looking for solutions with officers with fear, and if they can be taught, if you give respect, and you're going to have the idiots, uh, no, excuse me, the uh, inmates that may be a little bit uh, challenging, you're going to have those that are going to act out. Those are going to be there no matter what you do. But I guarantee you the majority uh, of people right. from my experience are there to do their time and hopefully for that day to go home. Uh, and you'll find with lifers, uh, they just want to – this is their life now. They don't want trouble. You can go to jail in jail, uh, unfortunately. Uh, so they can punish you, and you can do what they used to tell me. This, you can either do hard time in prison or you can make your time go a little bit better. Um, I learned that, but I learned when respect is given out and those things are done, uh, there's a different culture that begins to create. And I brought up Pastor Banks because she was able to deliver a message at that prison, and she set the culture, if you will, among gang members who were in the same room who were different, with different gangs, and she asked them to reach out and touch the other gang member's hand in agreement or to pray. And they said, oh, we don't do that, Pastor Banks. We don't we don't." <laughs> and she said, well, just, let's, she said, let's just start here. Put your foot out in the aisle and touch. Let your feet touch. And before it, Cliff, if I'm not mistaken, before it was all said and done, those men were touch holding hands to pray. Yes. Holding gang hands, members, rival together. gang members holding hands and praying together. I'll tell you what, folks, it takes people coming together and doing just that. That's right. Uh, to make people feel uh, that they can make a difference. And, Go ahead, and you know, the, the warden said at that time that, you know what, we have never had uh, anyone who's come in and had that type of impact where we can get rival gangs uh, that can come in, sit together, you know, without violence, have a discussion. And also, I mean, uh, for I'm sure, Gary, that that you and George know that there's a extreme segregation in the prisons. And for the listeners, I mean, you have, you have the white sect, the black oh. sect, the Hispanic, the Native American. There is a extreme segregation. The warden said, you know, I've never seen the different gangs come together in that type of peace and, and communication together. And I've never seen the the different nationalities come together and sit in a room and not segregated in the room, but just, hey, come in, you know, and, and we're having a congregation. And, and everybody is, is just in there saying, you know what, this has become a safe place where we can have communication, where we can feel like the men we were on the outside. And, and that is what it takes for, first off, the institution saying we're willing to have those type of uh, community groups come in, come in and, yeah. and make that type of impact. No, without question. And I'm going to give you a chance. We're going to wrap up this segment. Uh, folks, you want to hear more about Colorado Springs Fellowship Church? Go online, search Colorado Springs Fellowship Church. Pastor Rose Banks, I'll tell you what, uh, that's one of many things going on in this community of what she's doing. Uh, I bring that up tonight because this is about really giving back to community. Uh, Pastor Banks has been an example in Colorado Springs Fellowship of doing that. And to have that type of impact with a existing ministry, to run and yes. to minister to it, it's it's unbelievable but it's definitely admirable and we respect the efforts of Colorado Springs Southern Church and Pastor Banks. Gary, go ahead and tell the folks how to get a hold of you if they want to reach you. How do they get your book? Yes, sir. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And I'm also uh, my book is available on Amazon.com, uh, Kindle ebook, or you can get the paperback through Corruption Behind Bars. 
dot com straight direct from me and it'll be signed when you get it. And that's the same for my second book, Inside the Inner Circle. Uh that's also on Amazon or Corruption Behind Bars dot com. All right, thank you for that. And uh George, how can folks get a hold of you if they need to? Well, the, the easiest way, I'm, I'm not going to spell my last name because it's a, it's a mouthful, uh, but I wrote a book called Getting Away with Murder, and my, the best way to get to me is by putting gettingawaywithmurder.org into your browser, and that will take you to my website. And I encourage uh, the listeners tonight to check in to see what I'm doing and my book can be found on Amazon, and it's everywhere. Uh, and please contact me, and I'll put you on an email list that will keep you up to date with the issues and what I'm trying to do about it. So that's gettingawaywithmurder.org. And also, Gary and uh, George, I want to talk to you offline. I'm going to be giving you a call. I think we got your contact information. Uh, Just Calls has started an initiative called Let's Talk. Uh, where we invite people to come out and speak to the community out here to give education uh, to communities and to be really a featured speaker at this initiative. We've had uh, retired uh, New York Commissioner Bernard Carrick. Uh, we've had uh, Rod Bogovich, brother of the governor that has had been convicted. We've had some pretty good people out here to bring communities together and learn. I would hope that maybe we can discuss perhaps an opportunity uh, for you two uh, possibly to come out with such an event. I think it would be very helpful to the community out here, and uh, we can discuss that uh, again if, if that's okay if I can contact you on that matter. Absolutely. Sure, that'd be no great. No problem. Yeah. Okay, folks, Absolutely. Gary, George, thank you so much. Have a great evening. Uh, you've definitely uh, informed our listeners, and it's been very informative tonight of the information uh, that you've given. We can't tell you how grateful and thankful we are for joining our show tonight, and we, I'm sure uh, we'll have many other discussions in the future. Thanks for having Thank you very on. much for having us. Thank you. All right, take care. Have a good night. Good night. Take care. And there you have it, folks. Uh, I'll tell you what, good information. Right now, we go immediately to what you didn't know about the RP6. That starts right now. A just cause has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Serrigan about the RP6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just to decide, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us until these unbelievable events unfolded. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we live prayed and worked together that we should end up dying together because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions, the name of our company. I testified and then very objected 
a Donnybrook broke out because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind, and we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time, some 200 pages, but assured us that they would be produced at the end of the day. Transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper. And I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later, they finally got a grand jury to indict us. This time, they only called one witness, an FBI agent. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story Judge H. Lee Serkin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent to see the full story, the full playwright of the RP6 tragedy. Go to YouTube, search the race card. You don't want to miss it. Over a million people. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. It's strange to me. I think it's still strange. It absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? Mm. And then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. What we have learned is that the RP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to. Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare, crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org, sign the petition now 
America's future depends on it. And there you have it. What you didn't know about the RP6 story. Tonight we deal with an issue for a Warden M. Stencil who has effectively canceled and suspended visitation to the RP6 and their families. Why is that? His statement, effective immediately and pursuant to the authority in the Bureau of Prisons program, your social visiting privileges have been temporarily suspended pending the outcome of an investigation into possible threats to the good order or security of the institution. I'll tell you right now, that is a blatant lie. It was an act to cover up the retaliation and the violation of law levied uh, against the RP6 and their families by this corrupt warden. Tonight we address the issue. Cliff, uh, in four years of visiting the families of, of these six men, not one time has there ever been an issue of violation of rules, of compliance, but when a just cause took on the, uh, the burden, if you will, of exposing the corruption at the prison, not only down to how they treat the RP6 families, but through press releases dealing with a murder that took place at the prison, that was covered up by Warden Stencil and those that are there, then we become an act to retaliate against. This is unacceptable. And we raise the issue that we want to greet our loved ones with a hug and a religious right to practice. We've been told if we do so, these men's, uh, these young men would be thrown in the hole. Cliff, talk to the people. And this is totally insane because first off, how do you say, okay, your, your, uh, your privileges, your visitation privileges have been suspended uh, because you threaten basically some type of criminal act at the facility? How are you being punished for a crime that you never even attempted to commit? And, and, and so what Warren Stansel was basically saying is that everybody who comes and visits the IRP-6, that you're, you're committing a criminal act by hugging them. This is totally insane. And then all the time that the families and friends and the community group of uh, of the IRP6 have been going to visit them, this has been four years. Now, suddenly, uh, this is is some type of criminal act to group them. Now, you go out to the BOP's uh, website where it tells you about visitation. It says that you can greet with a hug, you can greet with a kiss, an embrace, a handshake, now suddenly, it's become a violation and some type of criminal act. Now there is there is no, no written violation, no, no warnings. warnings, no uh, okay, this has been seen before. None of this is on the books anywhere. Hasn't been brought up to any other visitor ever in four years. Now suddenly, we're suspending your visitation rights because this has become some type of criminal act. It totally makes no sense, and it all boils down to you, like you say, Lamont, is that. This is retaliation for the fact that a just cause brought to light that the that uh, Warden Stansel was violating the religious rights of the IRP6 uh, and, and their visitors. This, this is insane. Well, it says here, according to BOP standards of employee conduct, 
Retaliation or discrimination against those who report a misconduct is prohibited and carries a maximum penalty as severe as having employment terminated. It was overheard by one of the RP6 guys that they were to make the visiting situation very difficult. This was a conspiracy being discussed in the hallways, uh, in the hallways uh, at the prison, overheard with a group of officers that said, make it difficult for these families and especially the family of David Banks. Ladies and gentlemen, to be continued, I'll guarantee you that we're going to get into more of that uh, as we proceed further on the rest of our shows in this segment. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We thank our guest, Gary York, George Madencroft, for joining us. I'll tell you what, we'll see you next time as we sign out here on AJC Radio tonight as we bring the message of justice all around the world. Good night, America. Good night. Time while two former inmates filed a lawsuit against the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office and a former correctional officer. This is that former correctional officer, 28-year-old Belvin Sherrill. A judge recently sentenced him to 18 months in prison for having sex with an inmate and is requiring Sherrill to register as a sex offender. However, two women also want Sherrill and the Sheriff's Office to pay punitive damages for what they claim the former correction officer did to them. ABC News Force Nikki Gaskins has our story tonight. According to this lawsuit, on December 11, 2009, Belvin Sherrill sexually assaulted two female inmates inside the Georgetown County Detention Center. A spokesperson for the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office says SLED did investigate claims that Sherrill had sexual relations with female inmates inside the jail. And after a thorough investigation, Sherrill was fired after it was discovered that he sent a letter to a female inmate apologizing for the incident. In the lawsuit, two former female inmates claimed the ex-guard entered their jail cell and ordered them to perform a sex act on him. It goes on to state that the woman repeatedly pushed the panic button. However, it appeared to be broken. The woman claimed at no time during these incidents did any other employee with the sheriff's office or detention center intervene to take any actions to protect them. As a result of Cheryl's actions, the woman's attorney says they've suffered emotional and physical harm. Now, we did reach out to attorney Harry Oxner. He is representing the two women in this case. However, he says he has no comment on the current lawsuit. Reporting in Georgetown, Nikki Gaskins, ABC News 4. All right, Nikki. And Cheryl has filed a response to the lawsuit with the Georgetown County Clerk of Court denying, quote, each and every allegation.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.